Welcome to the JetRails podcast, supporting you through the airwaves with information about website and e-commerce technology and strategies from design and development to security, marketing, conversion rate optimization, and web hosting. We bring you insights from industry leaders and experts hosted, edited, and published by me, Robert Rand, your friendly neighborhood tech ambassador. Hi, welcome to an episode of the JetRails podcast. I'm Robert, your host. Today, we're going to be talking about accessibility. And it's a particularly interesting topic as you know we're always trying to focus uh, in the web industry and e-commerce on how can we uh, improve the flow through a website, how, how can we uh, increase conversions, how can we make sure that we're uh, speaking to the folks that get to our website in a healthy way and attract more. And uh, it's, I think, been a long journey so far to really address accessibility for all users. And so today's guest uh, from Essential Accessibility, Simon, is going to be able to bring us up to speed on a lot of what's going on around accessibility and compliance uh, in, in the market to be able to service the widest range of shoppers and, and customers and website visitors um, as possible. Um, something that uh, I, I'm excited to see finally becoming more mainstream <laughs> in the market. It's, uh, as they say, a long road. And Simon, with that, would you do the honors of introducing yourself? Hi, uh, thank you, Robert. Hello to all your listeners. Uh, my name is Simon Dermer. I'm co-founder and CEO of Essential Accessibility. What we offer is effectively pioneered and known as accessibility as a service. We support digital teams and organizations in their efforts to ensure that their digital assets both achieve and maintain compliance on an ongoing basis. And we enhance the customer experience to ensure that no one with a disability is left behind. And that in the promotion of inclusion, uh, experiences can be enjoyed by everyone, regardless of ability. And, you know, Simon, I, I figure it's probably good to break that down a little bit. I certainly have personal experience with helping sites with accessibility way back when in, in my agency days. But what types of accessibility uh, are, are we talking about when, when we talk about, uh, you know, improving websites and addressing um, the needs of this wider audience? Sure, sure. And taking it back a step further, you know, we look at the brick and mortar world, you think of the word accessibility, what comes to mind? Commonly wheelchairs, motor scooters, ramps in the buildings, we see braille now and elevator buttons, white canes. Those are the brick and mortar uh, objects and, and images that we associate with what accessibility is. Moving now to the digital world, and as we all know, especially your audience, everything is increasingly digital. Uh, the experience for people with various sensory and physical limitations can be compromised in these contexts. For example, one that will resonate um, quite obviously is if you're a person with limited hearing or a type of hearing impairment, obviously if you can't hear the audio on this podcast, that's going to be compromise the experience. That's why we have things like captioning and subtitles and, and various tools and strategies deal with that. If someone is physically challenged, think of the late Stephen Hawking. We've all seen images of him with this elaborate device that allowed him to control his computer without the use of his hands. He had motor neuron disease, ALS, 
nevertheless, Intel had designed them this, this elaborate system that allowed them to overcome these physical, overcome these physical limitations to interact with the computer, um, much as any typical user would. Uh, when you look at issues of vision impairment, uh, this is a more nuanced issue, but a very, very compelling one. If you close your eyes and you imagine, how would I interact with a website? Well, there are things called screen readers, which will read text and will read what's on the screen to uh, to any, any user. So when you think of the screen reader following the text on the web page, you would want it to read exactly what a trained visual eye would see if it were reading the text visually. But the thing is, the screen reader doesn't read the text on the web page. It reads the code that informs the, the text on the web page. And more often than not, actually, in the overwhelming majority of cases, uh, the vast majority of websites, that code is very, very mangled. So when the screen reader is trying to follow the text in a bouncy ball type format, it's really just jumping all over the page and reading gobbledygook. And, it, and, it's, and it's all being speech outputted in a manner that is highly unintelligible to the website visitor. So people who are vision impaired are effectively shut out on a site like this from the experience. They can't, uh, they can't absorb the information. The information is not actionable. They can't go to the checkout. They can't do their banking. So it's very, very critical that this be redressed, that this be remedied in some fashion. And that's what digital accessibility um, is about. It's addressing these facets of the experience for different disabilities. And it's not limited to just those three. Another one as well are, are, are cognitive or neurodiversity-related issues. When you think of dyslexia, you can have epilepsy. There are a range of cognitive issues that can be impaired um, and can be challenged depending on how information is conveyed the way it's laid out, the colors, the lights, the flashing, the color contrast, all those things affect the experience. When you put it all together, digital accessibility is about ensuring that when you launch a digital asset, you factor the needs of all these personas, all these users, and you need you have a process in place to address them. And that process, it's it's a it's a it's a complex undertaking to address all these various requirements. If you do it unassisted and unaided, you're not going to be able to achieve it as a as a developer. But with with a platform like Essential Accessibility, like ours that we've developed, it's all about giving you the guideposts and the inputs to inform the coding decision making that's taking place to ensure that the final generated output, the delivered digital asset, meets these minimum compliance requirements and actually goes beyond to ensure that the needs of all these users has been maximally factored and taken into consideration. So, you know, there's a few things happening here uh, in terms of the results. Um, so obviously, you know, the site is becoming more accessible to, to more people. What, in terms of the merchant and, uh, you know, the e-commerce e website owners, what is actually happening for them at the tail end once they do this properly and well? Um, what kind of expectation should they have? Are there, you know, variety of fringe benefits? Like I know back in the day, we would think of, we would want to fill out alt tags for images to add text to represent, you know, to describe what 
and image was about, um, no matter what, for SEO purposes, do you find that once a, a website goes through a stringent process, um, that there are metrics that are being hit or, or benefits that are being seen pretty reliably? Well, the, well, let's take a step back even before that. And let's talk about the disability market in general. One of the things we do when we speak to organizations is we say, we know, we know you're looking at this more commonly than not because of the regulatory requirement. Maybe you've been hit with a lawsuit, a demand letter. But we want to remind them that there are many, many more reasons to do this than the short-term element of getting the lawsuit off your back. And what we highlight is the fact that, first of all, about one in five individuals around the world self-identifies as having a disability. So that's 20% of the population. That's over a billion people around the world. That's a huge market. So you would certainly want to, if you're a business, if you're a government, if you're a service provider, you want to reach the maximum audience possible. So it's this is a very, very large audience. Number yeah, and, two. and if if you add up, I mean, so even if you cut out from that, let's say, you know, some of the people that have uh, disabilities related to, you know, walking and movement, you know, things that we were talking about that affect brick and mortar, even if you just pull that down to auditory and visual and uh, and cognitive and some of the things we've been talking about, it's still a huge number. Sure. And, 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 the, and you're yeah, you're getting to another point is the fact that not everybody with a disability has problems getting on a website. You could be missing both your legs and be a user of a motor scooter and you're, you're surfing the web, no problem. So it's a, certainly a subset of people with disabilities. But the important factor to recognize is as a brand that is out there trying to get your products and your services and your, and your message, you want to be, be seen to be a disability-friendly brand. So promoting accessibility isn't just about the individual user using it for a certain product or feature. It's about sending a message that I'm a brand that understands the needs. I am listening to you. I am here to empower you as a customer. And that is what informs uh, the, 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 the impact. It's the fact that it's the commitment. Organizations like Walt Disney, for example, which are just renowned for doing disability well, when they, for ex- for instance, hold uh, a, an autism friendly day, oh, sorry, that's the movie theaters. If they are, if they have a, 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 I think they do an autism friendly day. They and, do a, a lot around autism. Yes, yeah, so they, that would make they, sense. They, they, they do, yeah, they'll have dis- dis- disability themed days at, at the park, and um, people think, well, that's great. They'll attract that individual. But Disney's sending a bigger message than, than it's it's about more than just the the, the short term need that's being fulfilled of servicing that individual. It's about families are having an experience to come together. It's about recognizing that by doing all this all together, it sends a message to their employees internally. It's, it's. Inclusion is huge. And I think that in our lifetimes, we've seen inclusion go from, uh, you know, something that, that wasn't really at the forefront to something that we think more cognitively about that we care more about as societies and that, um, that, that I think we can all be proud of, um, but <laughs> that there's still uh, like so many things that, that we should take some pride in. Um, we haven't achieved, uh, I think, the full scope of, of what we can and, and what we shouldn't. So that's really interesting that, um, that so I, I guess inclusion being there not only to increase sales and to service a market, but also to speak to the larger uh, Population and to represent a business as inclusive and as 
as a company that cares. We had an episode a few months back where we we looked at a, an agency that became a uh, a publicly certified B Corp, um, a public service corporation. Um, and I, I think it's particularly interesting. You know, it's a, it's a for profit. It's not that they were. Uh, you know, there are. Um, B Corps that are on <laughs> the, the stock exchanges. It's not that um, that it's a, always about being a nonprofit, uh, but at the same time, you can think about the greater good. And I think that's really, um, you know, an, an interesting movement happening, uh, even in our, our for-profit and very capitalist sectors, uh, where we're trying to bring these things together. And I think shoppers more than ever um, care and there are, you know, generations that really shop based on some of these things first, based on the identity of who they're they're giving their money to, they're voting with their dollars. So I'm with you 100 percent there. That that's um, that's absolutely for me at at the forefront of all of this. Sure. So so once rec- once organizations recognize there's this market disability friendly brand, they realize ah all these all these efforts that we need to put into various areas address certain needs of certain individuals. And there's no one all-encompassing across-the-board solution that is going to single-handedly address the needs of the entire disability community. It's collectively, you're bringing them all together. And now as we look now to the digital environment, as we know, things are increasingly devolving and, and being moved to the, to the digital channels. COVID exacerbated that in particular. You could no longer go to a restaurant during the lockdowns, you could no longer go to a bank branch. You know, it, it was digital or nothing. You couldn't go to school. You couldn't do a Zoom call. So it's um, it really highlighted the importance of ensuring that these channels remain remain available to everybody, regardless, regardless of their ability. And so when you look at now, you're asking in particular around um, when you make these improvements to your site, the all tag example, it's a common example because any developer can relate to it. The idea of putting a tag on an image that provides a descriptor that um, informs the user of what's taking place in the image. So if someone's blind, the screen reader gets to the image. Very, very important that that descriptor be there. Otherwise, the information that's conveyed in the photo will not be clear to them. Pretty straightforward thing to do. Uh, unfortunately, again, it's woefully a practice that's woefully um, very poorly followed or adhered to. But it's an example of a simple, a, a very simple fix on a site that you don't need a lot of expertise to 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 implement. Um, you you also touched on the the benefits of S to SEO. We, we don't like to use access. We don't like to use SEO as the motivation to do accessibility because one, it's, 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 it's a difficult thing to really prove, uh, to, to really demonstrably show well, how is my SEO is a very nebulous activity in its own right. And, you know, we're not SEO specialists and the SEO game is very dynamic. The motivation to promote accessibility is serving this market. Of people with disabilities, and that should, in and of itself, be sufficient. But how, nevertheless, there is an SEO benefit, and it's been conveyed to me in the following manner: Google is the biggest blind searcher on the planet. In other words, the Google crawler is think of it as a blind individual, closed eyes closed, or that is going out and scouring the world for information, gathering it, 
consolidating it. So the, the more usable the format that it's placed in, which is all SEO practices, if that image has a clear descriptor on it, if you're following all these accessibility best practices, well, then that blind um, search web crawling search engine is going to do a better job of being able to categorize and label information and index it. So yes, there's an SEO benefit. One more reason uh, to, to, to get on the accessibility train and to, to, to justify the, um, the expense of it. Yeah, and you already mentioned compliance. And so, you know, there's the forward thinking way of looking at this, but then, you know, <laughs> the other side is risk analysis, of course. And uh, what are some of the risks of not being compliant and um, how serious are some of these, uh, you know, legal letters and, um, you know, and, and outreach from attorneys and other things that uh, that some merchants and, and businesses run into? Well, the, the risks are there. Last year alone, there were 11,000 um, lawsuits in, in the U.S. around digital accessibility. So that's a pretty, it's a pretty large number, um, which also suggests that there could have been 50,000 to 100,000 legal demand letters. We don't have a metric on that because it's not cataloged, but we certainly know there are, for every lawsuit, there are way more demand letters that are involved. Um, so the legal impetus has arrived. There's uh, many of these lawsuits are, are the, the, the plaintiffs are, have undergoing different, have different motivations. Some of the lawsuits are completely legitimate based on a user being squeezed out and having a compromised experience. A lot of them are, are frivolous drive-by lawsuits, nuisance suits, where the site hasn't even been necessarily evaluated. But whether or not, whatever the status or the case, the bottom line is there's one more legal impetus there. It's invoking the regulatory body that that's... Um, urging organizations to adhere to a certain standard, follow a certain level of best practices. And so you put all these forces, the confluence of factors together, and it really just points at all the, uh, all the, in one direction and that it's time to really start to do something about this. If you, if you haven't done that yet. And unfortunately we're seeing the market really maturing in terms of the awareness of this. We're, 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 we're past that stage of awareness. And now, Organizations are searching for solutions. They're realizing that there are a number of paths they can take to doing this. A lot of them are attended by much frustrations or great costs or inefficiencies, and they're looking for the optimal ways that best suit their organization to, to effectively embed this into their development process and to make it make it an ongoing, an ongoing practice. You know, it's interesting that... I I think it relates a lot when we talk uh, in our industry about PCI compliance. And if you accept credit cards, you have to adhere to standards from the payment card industry, uh, PCI. And that's important. Um, you don't want to be risking fines and suits and other uh, all sorts of other issues um, or, or being shut down in some way in terms of your ability to accept uh, payment cards. But that's not the number one, you know, that that those standards don't describe detail uh, by detail exactly how to keep your website secure. Um, similarly, uh, the number one reason to keep your website secure probably shouldn't be um, to avoid fines and, and suits. It should really be to protect your business, to 
uh, you know, protect your, your customers from negative experience because, you know, it's not just that somebody's going to sue you. You're going to uh, feel some pain of, um, of having your site negatively impacted, um, you know, that uh, you can really damage your brand and, and have other things. We've touched on the topic through other episodes and, and other content, but I think that it's, it's interesting that there's that duality to it, that there's the regulatory bodies and there's also doing the right thing. <laughs> uh, and of course, you know, one is more meant to just give you that extra push in the right direction. But at the same time, what is anybody waiting for that, whether it's security or, or whether it's something like accessibility, it just makes sense that it's hard to get somebody that's anti accessibility, I would imagine, or just like, it's hard to get someone that's anti security. It's just about getting them um, to stop and address it. it would that kind of jive with the way that, that you have conversations with merchants and others in the industry, they just haven't gotten to it yet, or they didn't realize what they were missing or how to achieve it. There are, there are, there are, there are a lot of reasons. This is the legacy reason. And there's the, there's, there's the statistical reason. People think that disability is, as I mentioned earlier, it's a wheelchair or a white cane. So when they go out in the, in, in the brick and mortar world and they see one person in a wheelchair in a given week, they think, well, there aren't that many people with disabilities out there. How important is this anyway? And they don't understand, well, very only a small percentage of people with disabilities use motor scooters or wheelchairs. And there's some 60% of disabilities are hidden. You can't see it. So they underestimate, first of all, the size of the market. Then they might make an assumption that, well, people with disabilities, they don't have any money. You know, they're, they're, they don't have this kind of spending. And the, the, the truth there is the fact that on the socioeconomic ladder, on average, yes, the income of an, of, a, of an average person with disability is going to be lower than someone who, who isn't living with one with a disability. And that arises from the fact that the, uh, the employment rate is lower in the disability community, which is another social imbalance that is being continually redressed to, to restore the, uh, equity in that domain. But nevertheless, the disability market still has a massive spend. Everyone still needs to eat and clothe and get transportation. And so it, they, it's all predicated on this false assumption that it's not worth the attention. The, the flip side of that is the legacy of, uh, model of brick and mortar, there were, there were significant investments that had to be made to create uh, to an accommodation, to create an accessible environment. If you think of the cost of an independent restaurateur putting in one wheelchair accessible bathroom uh, on a street with where there's no ramp. I mean, that's, that could be a very sizable investment and to a business that's already struggling. And so there were true financial barriers to retrofitting the brick and mortar world to, to, to accommodate and address everyone's disability. I mean, it, it just wasn't feasible in, 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 in these circumstances, in every circumstance. Yet when you look at the digital world, one website can serve a trillion dollar organization. So when you amortize, spread that cost over all those 5,000 restaurants that could be associated with that one restaurant, you can, you can see that, wow, now a little bit of investment in accessibility, the cost of retrofitting that one washroom in one restaurant in the digital world can make their whole digital experience accessible to everybody with any disability. So you can see that it's becoming much more efficient to address, uh, prioritize accessibility 
uh, initiatives and, and ensure that experiences can accommodate and, and be experienced enjoyably by everyone equally. And, you know, so, so there are huge companies out there, the Amazons of the world that have uh, some pretty significant coffers to tap into when they uh, want to improve something or, or when they want to be forward thinking. Um, when it comes to the rest of the market, you know, mid-market businesses, perhaps, um, you know, companies that are up and running that have customers, uh, do a lot of the same rules really apply in, in your mind? Is it achievable uh, on the same level to uh, address accessibility in a pretty holistic way? And what does some of that look like? I know we've talked about organizing content in a way that, you know, that uh, systems can read it uh, for people that can't see it themselves. And um, we've talked about tagging images and such. What else goes into that? Um, so what does the market look like today in terms of uh, there are these up and running businesses and they should be more accessible? You know, what is what's actually uh, really f feasible and, and happening today? Yeah, that's a good question because not all websites are created equally. I mean, the vast majority are, are could be blog sites or one-person, part-time managed versus small business. You could have the local Chinese restaurant, you know, that has a very basic website through to the, obviously we get the mid market into the enterprise level. So you have different. Yeah. I mean, you know, little Susie's lemonade stand isn't exactly putting well, in a, a wheelchair ramp um, for better or worse. Little Susie, who's paying $8 a month for, for, um, uh, for a site. Um, yes, the, 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 the expense, that's why the affordability of solutions. One of the challenges in the accessibility space is automation. Automation, you would intuitively think, is the answer to addressing this, this challenge. But the problem is automation can only address about 30% of the types of errors that, uh, that, that afflict a typical digital asset. And, and that's what I'm talking about, not even a typical digital asset. That's what I'm talking about, a responsive website. And forget other assets that are more um, esoteric or unique. So it's a challenge. You know, you need to have human involvement. You need to have technical expertise. And that is not going to be within the reach of the smallest businesses. But there are many, many things that can be done to elevate and enhance the experience further. It may not achieve complete compliance in every specific instance, but if, you, if developers educate themselves, if they make use of some of the tools, there are open source tools, if they get some feedback, you can certainly do many, many things that will improve that experience and can move them along the curve further at, at a very, very low cost. But yes, if you've got many assets, complex assets, you're going to need, like, more, like any organization of a certain size, you're going to absolutely need a third party uh, vendor. To to help you with that, and I'm gonna team. I'm gonna flip that over for a second. Within these established businesses, you know that they're up and running. They've got hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue, millions of dollars in in annual revenue online. Um, in some cases, more. Uh, you know, and I suppose in some cases going up toward uh, toward enterprise uh, organizations. What types of people in the organization should be involved in accessibility um, as well as compliance? Who is typically tasked with addressing these 
these issues within an organization? Is it a mix of people from, you know, developers to merchandisers to, uh, you know, to business owners and e-commerce managers and such? Or do you typically find that there's a few people that need to deal with a few key tasks, especially for things that are more uh, more manual in order to, to do them well, uh, you know, that, that require some writing and some forethought? Responsibility is going to lie with the compliance officer or GC. I mean, ultimately, if there's a problem, it's going to land on their desk. So it's on their radar to various degrees. Maybe they're not hearing about it till it's too late, but the proactive ones are getting ahead of it and ensuring their organizations are adhering to these mandates. Chief digital officers, it's going to, it's going to fall within their purview. Now, the day-to-day of managing the accessibility, that's typically going to be assigned someone on the digital team. Um, we're increasingly seeing in the larger organizations accessibility coordinators who are being tasked with the, with the responsibility of coordinating and ensuring deadlines are being met. Digital teams are, are adhering to and following the practices and the guidelines and, and the guidance they're receiving from solutions providers like ourselves. We offer a platform that, that's leveraged and the, and the developers take advantage of so they can, they, they basically, it's a roadmap telling them what they need to do. And it's giving them the feedback at each step of the way to make sure that that code that is being, um, that is being, that is going live and launching is, is, is ensuring that it's all in the service of delivering a product that's going to be accessible to everybody. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's it's digital. I mean, ultimately, it's it's the people who are building the assets themselves. When you look at documents, though, PDFs, quite often you might have uh, an owner that isn't a digital expert. They're just they're a content creator who just happens to be publishing it in in in, in a format, and they've got to adhere to accessibility requirements. That can be um, to a certain extent a user as well that's going to need help. That's very ad hoc, like one piece of content at a time. But the main thrust, the main experiences we are, the users are encountering today, are it's at the website level of large organizations. Mm-hmm. Ordering pizza, doing your banking, booking your healthcare appointment, mobile apps, going and ordering your your delivered food. These are the big. If you look at where we're spending, the average user spending their time, it's fulfilling those those basic needs. Instacart, getting your groceries, those are the those are the priority areas now. And within those experiences, the priorities are being able to do the minimal, minimal things you need to do to 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 get your groceries. So and I think it's interesting you mentioned PDFs and, and documents that if you're a manufacturer and you've got sell sheets, manuals, uh guides, other things, you know, on your product pages or or within your site. That's those are additional pieces of content that should follow some additional best practice. That uh, you know, sometimes as businesses grow, <laughs> uh, we all forget about just how many assets there are that uh, that need to be handled properly. So, uh, I'm you know, once one of these sites becomes compliant, I imagine that there's uh, for an existing website that there's that heavy you know lifting up the mountain, just like with other initiatives like. SEO that we talked about or other things to, you know, make sure things are properly tagged and uh, in the right order and so on. And uh, once that happens, how much work does it take comparatively for maintenance to continue to stay compliant? I I imagine that, that the 
the rules and the technology of compliance don't change tremendously over time. Uh, that that I'm sure you know that there's some evolution still happening, but that it's is it mostly about just addressing new products and new content uh, in a healthy way moving forward, so that as you add and adjust, that you're you're continuing to address it, or is there any other kind of maintenance or cleanup to properly stay compliant and stay on top of accessibility? In, 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 the, in the good old days, the attitude was, well, I built my website, it's done, and we're never going to have to build another website. There's this finality and in, in, in the staticness to digital assets that gave everybody the impression that it was a punctuated event, whether it was creating the asset or even accessibility. As we all know now, digital assets are continually being innovated. New ones are appearing all the time in an organization, and they're dynamic. And they're dynamic in many respects. The content's being refreshed, the messaging's being refreshed, and the interoperability of the new technologies, the, a new browser version's coming out. It needs to play nice with this plugin. If the fact that as long as you have a digital team, you're going to need a, you're going to need to be addressing accessibility. So, in, unless you unless you're someone that believes that your digital team can be let go and they can go home because your digital assets are all there. <laughs> That's a, a good way of looking at yeah, it. It's yeah. Of the notion that accessibility is one and done. Like it's ongoing the same way your digital is ongoing. Think of it as a quality assurance step and the an ongoing final quality assurance step in the process before you're launching and maintaining any assets. So certainly the element of retrofitting a portfolio of assets versus maintaining them. Well, that's got a lot of upfront work. You're getting on the train you're building up your momentum. But once you've achieved the momentum, um, you've overcome that initial inertia. Well, at that stage, the maintenance is going to be a lot more. If you're always building and launching with accessibility in mind, then the lifting is never going to be heavy. It's always going to be just light ongoing work. But if you're trying to go back and retrofit stuff, I mean, that's going to be it. Yeah, you got to get up the mountain at that point. You know, maintaining base camps, not as hard, but... Uh, I suppose it's the same way that, uh, you know, in my day to day, we talk about security and, and uh, loading speed optimization and scalability of sites that as you add new extensions, plugins, modules, add-ons, as you update other files in, in your site, as your database grows, as, uh, you know, as your server software gets updated, uh, all these things are happening as you add new product images and other things that um, you know that, that uh, may have scaling issues. As other facets are moving, you need to load test and make sure that your site can still handle the same amount of traffic that some bottleneck didn't get added in. That you have to keep tracking your loading speed. That just because your loading speed was at two seconds last month doesn't automatically mean that it'll be at two seconds <laughs> moving forward as your site keeps evolving. Um, you know, and security for sure is just a moving target that you always have to keep your eye on the ball. So I suppose that this this gets added to that um, to that checklist uh, that requires some ongoing, but just like security, when you have everything properly locked down, you're running good scans, you're you're staying on top of it, that the footprint to continue to stay secure when you've got all the right tools and systems should be a lot more manageable. The same with these other things. If, if your site was able to handle a certain amount of traffic, uh, you may have introduced a bottleneck, but clearing that bottleneck, um, you've already gotten everything else where it needs to be. So 
um, and, and speed the same. So I think that's, that's an interesting way of looking at it, that it's pretty par for the course for what these businesses uh, that are properly addressing these issues, uh, I, I suppose, use as a normal cadence and expectation. Yeah, digital, the digital teams never sleep. I mean, there's always, there's always never, one. So. never. Well, and you know, and there are these, uh, the, you know, these larger tasks of catching up on something or, or really addressing something new. And then you know, there's, there's maintenance, uh, to, to stay where you need to be. And, you know, early in the episode, we talked a little bit about some of the different, um, disabilities that require, uh, some forethought and uh, and some work to address. Are there any that you find that are still tough to support online that that you think that we might see strides in the next few years um, that really the software is still being improved or maybe there's only you know a very small percentage uh, you know of, of uh, players in the market that, that are really addressing it well and, and you think it'll come more to toward a wider swath of the market? I can tell you this: co- addressing cognitive limitations is very challenging, just because they're 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 so nuanced, they're so subtle. One person could require vocabulary written at a level of a certain grade, and another person requires something else. So there's there's a bit of conflict between addressing different ones in the cognitive realm. So that's certainly a big an area of big challenge. When we get into the more um, uniform, homogeneous type of, of of limitations, let's go back to that example of the Altag. Um, we're seeing some progress being made on the AI front in terms of the ability to label an image. So let's imagine you are uh, you, there's an image of a boy throwing a ball in a picture, and AI has now demonstrated the ability. <coughs> excuse me. AI has now demonstrated the ability to potentially label that image based on a training data set. So that's an advancement. That's progress. So if you're an organization with millions of photos and Going back to label them all, you could run an AI program through and do it. The problem is, though, the context of the image may not be a boy throwing a ball. It may be the backdrop to the image. It may be the context in which the image is juxtaposed with the text. So the problem is meaning. The AI cannot pick up the meaning in any means. So there's so that's why that's why automation is so limited in what it can do. You can only test currently about thirty percent of the types of errors that could arise through automated means. And so if you can't even test more than 30%, how could you even fix that many? You, you, you can't fix what you can't test. So what we're seeing is a preponderance of, of these solutions on the market that are preparing to be able to be one, one flip, flip of the switch type solutions that can instantly test all the errors and fix all the errors and it's just, it's a bunch of chicanery. Like it's not able to do it. It's just preying on consumers or businesses that don't really know any better on the promised hope of satisfying this requirement. And the reality is it just can't be done. Well, I, I think that the SEO world has tried to do that for years. And, you know, if you just try to let automation determine the content on your website, yeah, it might help your rankings a little bit, but uh, you know, uh, when someone actually comes and reads it, is it going to make any sense? Is it really going to convert you know those visitors in, into customers? Um, I, I would imagine that it comes back to to a lot of that. That um, when we're talking about being able to make an e-commerce sale, um, being able to walk a, a consumer um, through detail that's going to enable that, because um, that's what these sites are all about. Um, that's 
that's a long lasting challenge and that the human mind, uh, you know, Skynet hasn't quite arrived yet. <laughs> uh, you know, AI is, is not going to quite be there uh, in that detailed way anytime soon. And, you know, when, um, when one of these businesses is uh, trying to catch up, because I think that's where a lot of businesses are. It's, uh, you know, they, they may have addressed a couple of these things, but in terms of holistic compliance, there's certainly a way more uh, e-commerce businesses that have not addressed this that, than that really have. What type of a timeline from the time that they make a an informed decision and you know select any vendors, software, solutions to help along the way and keep them organized and uh, help them make sure that they're really achieving their goals to the time that they've really gotten through the process? And I know that that's going to differ greatly based on the amount of products, the amount of pages, the amount of content, uh, the amount of, of you know, labor and how specialized within their team. But is there sort of a, an average project between you know, X weeks and, and X months that, that these sorts of projects well, take? My, my answer to that would be, is there any average like, organization? It's, every situation is different. So I would, how I would approach it, if I'm a buyer and um, it's time to address this, First off, you know, you may have to get over the idea of being able to retrofit everything you've got going on. It just may not even be feasible. So at minimum, take a forward looking approach and just say, from this point forward, I'm not going to launch anything that isn't being done right. So at least there, time will at least fix it if you if you adopt that, that policy. Um, n- number one. The other thing is too, it depends on the solution, the approach you take to it. If you go off and you think that hiring some trinket for the website with AI is going to solve your problem and that's the solution. Well, you're, and then you kick your feet up and wait six months for a lawsuit to come in. You've just set yourself back six months. So it all depends on whether you do this right from the get-go and you, you build this in, you know, an accessibility program, the management of it into your dev cycle and you do this right. Assuming you do this right, you don't take the wrong approach, a glass half full approach, a glass completely empty approach, and you do it right, and you're looking at one asset, one average asset, not a complex site, you can certainly within, um, you can certainly with a vendor start getting some excellent feedback on the types of challenges and, and errors that are being, that are embedded in your, in your code. You can get that feedback within a few weeks and you can start getting to work on it and, and, and beginning to remediate this within a few months, if you're really going to put all hands on deck and take a concerted effort to do it. It's important to put an accessibility statement on your site that gives expression to this commitment that you understand this. This is about the mitigation of the legal risk and to send a message to the community that, you know what, we know we haven't been perfect historically, but right now we are embarking on, we're building this into our process and um, these are the steps we are taking this is the vendor we have engaged. And that sends a message to everyone like, all right, these guys are serious. This isn't lip service. But if you're just going to put some sort of uh, fake uh, solution on a site thinking that's going to be the cure-all, you're sending a message to the market that not only you're not taking this seriously, you're, 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 slapping, you're slapping the user in the face. That reminds me a lot of, I saw, and I, I'll admit that I had st- took some part in adding Google Translate to any number of websites back in the day, uh, not always by choice, but that was, you know, all automated. 
the quality of the content, especially as you were talking about, um, you know, individual products and such that really needed to be described properly was pretty limited. Was it better than nothing? Perhaps. I mean, today, browsers and what have you can do a lot of that. You don't necessarily need to add uh, the the Google Translate dropdown to a site or that sort of thing. Was it going to compare to actually having handwritten translations uh, for different languages? Absolutely not. Um, and so I, I think that there's an amount of that, that, you know, you can put something up there and you can hope that it's going to do something for you. But, and in the case of that, um, you know, you also, again, you lose out on fringe benefits, like, you know, with Google translate, you're not hosting different, uh, content on your site in different languages. You're not getting any SEO value. It's not helping you to run your Google ads or other advertising in, in other, uh, you know, in, in other languages in terms of quality scores and other things that, um, that I think it's, you know, if you're trying to advertise and bring in people from a, a particular community <laughs> and, and that's the best that you're going to offer them, um, that you're going to see pretty limited interest and, and results and feedback. And I imagine it's, it's very much the same, not a perfect, uh, analogy, but, uh, it just strikes me as, as something that the market has tried and that there's a reason why we don't see that Google Translate dropdown on lots of e-commerce sites today. It's yeah. really not what we needed then and not what we need now. In a similar vein, when you look at the automated captioning, that's possible now. YouTube videos, you can automatic cap. So you would think intuitively, oh, that's a great thing. That's wonderful. But a lot of the people in the hearing impaired community, potentially the consensus is, it's actually a bad thing. Um, again, I don't know if I could state that the entire community believes that, but certainly a subset of the community strongly believes that the, the automated captioning is a bad thing. And you think, why? It's Some captioning is better than none. Well, because it sends a message that you can rely on this imperfect system, which now sends a message that we don't need to hire real translators who will get the meaning, meaning right. And you have a world full of partially poorly transcribed, albeit automat automated fashion video that is going to really kill the experience. So if Netflix was to use only automated subtitles and captioning, I mean, imagine how horrible it would be following a movie based on what the computer has, <laughs> has interpreted. So um, that's very similar to the translation. You're getting that natural language sort of processing issue interpreting. That makes perfect sense. And you know, I mean, I imagine it's probably easiest to address some of these things when rebuilding or, or migrating or replatforming a website, because at that point, you can take a more holistic look at the front end um, and design elements, color schemes, fonts, sizes, different things, you know, pretty because you're going to do that anyway. Um, so it's a good time to deal with that while, you know, dealing with positioning and adding technology and doing so many things that, that can impact uh, users with, with a variety of, of disabilities. Um, and I, I think you hit on something interesting that there are going to be some things that without rebuilding a site, depending on what technology was used, how old it is, what the dependencies are, uh, that you might not be able to fully achieve the way that you'd want um, until you you upgrade a replatform um, or at least really you know, reinvest in. And so I suppose that that probably generates some um, you know, some interesting conversations uh, and challenges that, uh, as with so many things, uh, you know, I mean, we deal with in e-commerce, uh, a lot of businesses that are using old 
point of sale software in their retail stores. And, you know, you want to have an omni-channel experience. You want people in the store and online to be able to use the same gift cards, you know, in the same way and be able to use the same reward points that they're, you know, collecting as part of a loyalty program in the same way. But these systems aren't always, you know, when you're dealing with with a system that's decades old in in your stores, that becomes challenging. Um, And so, you know, when the website uh, turns out to be the older part of the tech stack, (laughs) I imagine um, that, that that can be just as challenging. I would hope, though, that a lot of the you know, like we mainly at, at JetRails deal with, with open source uh, platforms, of course, uh, as a web host. And so, you know, platforms like Magento are extremely flexible that um, hopefully, yes, there there's going to be some lifting to do, but uh, n- nothing too dastardly in, in terms of uh, holding a business back from achieving their, uh, their accessibility and compliance, uh, you know, aspirations. Yeah, so I... I wonder, um, you know, we keep talking about accessibility. I know that when I travel in the United States, we've got a a lot of regulation uh, around, um, you know, ADA, uh, Americans with Disabilities Act uh, style compliance um, in in terms of wheelchair ramps and accessible bathrooms and some of the things that we've touched on. Um, Is it... But, you know, in the U.S., we've been seeing in recent years that some compliance like data privacy has been more stringent in other places like the EU. Uh, When it comes to accessibility compliance, is there a gold standard? Are there places that are maybe the most stringent um, or or the most advanced uh, in terms of regulation? Um, Or is it all pretty similar internationally? It definitely varies. You've got a patchwork and interpretations can vary within uh, within nationalities. Where, where You could have stringent regulations, yet poor enforcement. And then you could have less stringent ones with stronger enforcement. So it's a multifactorial sort of the inputs into that decision. We When we speak to an organization, like this is the right thing to be doing. You need to be doing this. We try to avoid the splitting hairs over what the regs say here, what they don't say there. There's enough out there, enough impetus to basically inform what should be the correct decision. You should be committed to it. Now, if you're dealing with a response with a legal situation, you've been hit with the demand letter, you've been hit with, uh, with the lawsuit, and oh my God, we can't, we can't retrofit all this stuff in all these jurisdictions. Well, then you're going to start taking a prioritized approach in those markets and you're going to have to make some tough trade-off decisions. For certain, but you're seeing Europe is just brought online their accessibility act. Um, Brazil's got one. Canada, uh, Canada's got multi at the provincial level, at the national level. We've just launched one, and um, in in Ontario, for example, you've got a very well defined act that goes beyond minimum requirements. It mandates communication supports, but the enforcement is also at the same time very very poor. Uh, the U.S. Um, has some vagaries in the language, but precedents are over are overcoming those ambiguities or those gaps and making the message pretty clear on what's required. And the U.S. being the most litigious environment in the world, that of course is ushering in the the the, the, the thrust that we're seeing today and and the urgency that's, um, that's that's informing it. So yeah, there's the variation, but uh, the world's all heading in an, the arrow of progress is moving in one direction. Yeah, look, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, 
our litigious society here in, in the States does certainly um, create problems um, for merchants and others. But, you know, that that <laughs> notwithstanding, and I'll spare the, the listeners from uh, all the lawyer jokes, <laughs> and, uh, it's good to see this moving forward for its own reasons. Um, I'm going to take a risk here and I'm going to circle back to to something, um, you know, that I want to be able to look at this as something altruistic, something that uh, we should be doing because it should be done. But, you know, and obviously there's that risk that's very hard to uh, in terms of um, lawsuits and things that's, you know, very hard to put numbers to. But have you found that merchants do see some kind of a sales lift or ROI when properly addressing compliance, because now they're able to service more of a market. They're able to uh, get people excited and, and happy about what they're doing uh, for these communities, um, you know, outside of, again, you know, things that are much harder to track, like, you know, fringe SEO benefits or anything like that. Very hard because you'd have to, you'd have to orchestrate in all things equal mutatis mutandi sort of study that you would, adjust for it. And then the cost of doing these things, it's, we, there's enough reasons to do this without having to prove it based on, I sold 12 more pairs of jeans. Having said all that, we have done, um, we have, have been able to measure impact in different ways through, through surveys, through utilization, through feedback. We've, we've come up with some innovative methodologies online to engage customers with disabilities, to solicit their impressions and what's going on. And by those qualitative measures, we've absolutely been able to dent what you could, you could draw conclusions and extrapolate to larger uh, audience scenarios that there's a measurable impact here that more than justifiably um, that, that justifies the investment for, for the large organization. But um, it, it's, it's no, there aren't, I mean, that's a very, in the, I, I love to tell the anecdote of this is a little bit more back in the day, 10 years ago or so you had three organizations one would be a pure brick and mortar. One would be a pure e-commerce shoe seller. The second would be a, a big traditional brick and mortar shoe seller with like an e-commerce division. And the third would be a pure brick and mortar with just a little website. So think of like a Zappos being pure e-commerce, uh, a Timberland type store with like a, you know, an e-commerce division and, and, and the store. And then you could have like an old school, like a Bata with like, you know what I mean? Old school shoe with a little website. And you'd say to yourself, who what, what, which of those organizations do you think is going to take the biggest interest, hypothetically, in embracing accessibility in the early days? What, what, which would you guess? Where is it going to, which, which organization would you expect to go first, second, and third, if you were to rank them? Oh, you, you're going to put me on the spot yeah, now. What would you guess? Well, well, you, you, would, you would think that the digital first folks would be putting more focus on their digital channel, but the brick and mortar folks are used to compliance. And so they're more likely, I would imagine, to have compliance officers and other people that are uh, that are going to, you know, make them aware of of things that are going on and that are going to be tracking what's going on from that side. So this could really go for me either way. And I, whichever one I choose, I'm going to totally lose out here. <laughs> yeah, we all we would all get this wrong. So yeah. yeah, what you said is exactly what any sentient human would think. But the reality is, the e-commerce. And a pure e-commerce provider historically has been very impersonal, very click driven. They don't see the human. They just see the click. And so to them, it's all just about clicks. And the problem is going back to your question of, do you see the uplift? 
not to say there's no uplift, but it's very hard for accessibility to com compete with Google. At the end of the day, if you could buy one more Google AdWord for $2, or I could put that $2 towards accessibility, accessibility is going to have a big challenge beating Google at its own game. So that, that, that kind of answers the question for you. So e the pure e-commerce companies had the least interest. The brick and mortar had the most because they know humans. They deal with humans all the time. They're very people-centric. So they would be very sympathetic to, to the need for this. But then you would think by that logic, then the hybrid organization would be the best because they've got the big brick and mortar, but they've also got the e-commerce best of both worlds. Well, the problem was the e-commerce division of a mid-side of a company like that would be struggling. It would be such a, a frustration for a traditional brick and mortar retailer historically. They just didn't want to hear about any more e-commerce related type mm. money pit initiatives. So it's just that the, the culture of accessibility in the digital world is emanates from that legacy history. Now we're seeing though changes though. E-commerce companies are very savvy now. Their workforces are very, very progressive. And that human element is 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 coming to is flourishing increasingly behind the scenes. Like it's 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 not a, a, a webmaster culture so much anymore in in the pure e-commerce organizations. It's it's being really humanized and becoming more human people centric. So yeah. that is changing. I can recall begging businesses to let us build them uh, mobile responsive front ends for their websites, and I I can vividly remember businesses dragging their feet for years, you know, not, not months, not a year, multiple, multiple years that now, you know, we, we, we track our traffic in Google analytics and, you know, we would look at the data together and look, you know, that the, the mobile conversion rate is so low that, you know, trying to spend more time on that, how's that going to help? But what people had a hard time, uh, e even processing it wasn't always just about um, what we would think of as the last click as the purchase. So just in earlier days, people were more likely to go to their desktop or what have you to type in their credit card. It was a pain to do on a mobile device. Uh, things have certainly gotten better with digital wallets and um, and lots of other, you know, and biometrics and other things. But um, But the challenge was that there was a shopping journey. And so if you couldn't get the shopper to first engage with the site, to browse through the site, to find something, they'd never make it to making that desktop purchase. Of course, today we see more and more purchases just happening native mobile um, for, you know, it varies site to site, industry to industry. It's not quite 50% uh, according to larger aggregate data from, from uh, big companies like Adobe, uh, but it's on track to be uh, pretty soon. So. You know, it's, you can be at the forefront of this trend and capture more customers and um, and increase uh, your your brand following and um, and do right by the market, or you can be at the tail end and trying to catch up to everybody else. Uh, but I think that I, that's a lot of how I look at accessibility as an individual. Is that you know the technology has arrived. Um, the ability to achieve this has arrived and the market is going to expect it more and more. Um, you can be at the forefront or you can be at the tail end. That's, you know, that's up to individual businesses to, to determine. But uh, my advice would always be stay at the forefront of something like that, that um, that just makes sense. Sure. And then another thing too, like just a point to leave everyone off on, it's 
take the view that it's not an us or them thing. People stereotypically kind of look at disability that way. And so you got to take the view that, you know, we all have a disability in the long run. It's only a matter of when. Like everyone, something like 50% of people over the age of 70 have some form of disability. You know, we wear glasses. That's, you know, a light form of vision impairment. So it's just take the view that be almost be selfish about it. Like think of your own needs. Like what would, what would they be? What would you expect in, in a situation like that? And, and just personalize it more just to get to assume that perspective and not take this kind of like it's an alien mindset. Like, oh, that's for somebody else with 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 a different requirement that I can't relate to. Like, that's just again, that's a, a very legacy way of thinking. Absolutely. I, I sat on the board of a nonprofit school for kids with, with special needs for years. I was president of the board and that was one of the toughest challenges that we had. Um, was that there were uh, nonprofits and uh, and charities and things that were very easy for people to get behind. But if you didn't have someone um, that was affected by autism, cerebral palsy, something that the school was uh, was there to address, uh, it was hard sometimes to get people who hadn't visited the school or hadn't been to one of our events to just intrinsically understand what the value was and why they should be behind it and why as a community, we needed to be behind things like it. Um, that's obviously on a, a micro level as opposed to dealing with things, you know, nationally and internationally as, as a macro, uh, you know, thing, but at, at the same time, th- these are people's lives. And so quality of life, I think for, for us, our neighbors, our communities is always something that we can and should strive for. Um, Simon, I think this has been a pretty eye-opening episode for us o- over here at uh, at, at JetRails. <laughs> uh, I think our team's really going to enjoy sharing this one. Uh, I, you know, not that we don't normally, but uh, in particular. Do you have any uh, final thoughts, words of wisdom, things coming down the pike, anything else to add before we wrap it up for the day? Just, you know what? You know, hopefully we've persuaded you of the necessity here. And for those of you who are already doing it, Take a methodical approach. Don't get hoodwinked. There's a lot of there's a lot of uh, bogus sort of offerings on the marketplace. It's uh, it's 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 not an easy thing for sure. We're not going to tell you it's 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 a quick one and done type area. Hopefully, we've got that point across. And uh, just don't take a failed approach. Make sure you get a credible vendor that's really going to give you the, the the guidance guidance you require to do this right. And it's a combination of people and um, and technology. Awesome. Well, to our listeners, as always, thanks for tuning in. Simon, we really appreciate your time today and uh, all your insights. And uh, you know, for anyone that wants to continue to see more great content like this, we've got a lot more coming out. Uh, so uh, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're seeing this video. And uh, you know, we'll wish you happy selling. Thanks for listening to the JetRails podcast. You can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We also post full videos of most episodes on the JetRails YouTube and Facebook channels. You can find links at jetrails.com forward slash podcast. Have questions about an episode? Is there a topic you'd like us to cover in the future? We're at JetRails on LinkedIn and Twitter. Do you want to sponsor this podcast? Sorry, but we're committed to ad-free listening. We are, however, always looking for guests that our listeners will benefit from. And don't forget to like the podcast on whatever platform you're tuning in from. It's a small ask, but it's a big help. We appreciate it, and more importantly, we appreciate you.